Thank you, Ken. Morning, church. It's so good to see you. I am uh, I'm still riding the wave of excitement from Friday night. Uh, if you were here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was uh, an exciting night of worship, an exciting time of fellowship. That last song was just one example of what the whole night was like. And so I'm just riding that, that, that wave of excitement about what God is doing in our church um, and so if you weren't here, we missed you, um, and, and just sad that you weren't able to be a part of that, but it was exciting. But I really like what Nick said Friday night at the beginning, when he said, when we talk about fall kickoff, it's not as though God has been taking a nap, or we somehow hit pause on the work of God, and now we're going to hit play. Like, God has been at work. The fall kickoff is really just to celebrate what we see God doing in our church in the next few months, and so it was an exciting time to talk through all that with you and just worship together, fellowship together. Um, we're going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, I'll give you a second to do that. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we put Bibles under the seats. Those are for you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word, and so um, if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. Um, Ephesians 4 is where we're going to be, and just a little quick background and a little bit about where we're going. So um, the book of Ephesians has got these beautiful themes that stitch it together, this kind of unfolding of, of the Apostle Paul's heart for these believers in Ephesus who were not, for the most part, Jewish by birth, so they were technically Gentiles. And, uh, and you can just kind of hear in his encouragement to them as he's going over all of the blessings that Christians have in Christ it's almost as if he, he's trying to awaken the Gentiles to see what they, what they already have and to, to see this beautiful um, kind of gospel arrayed in such a way that they understand that they're included in the promises of God. They're not stepchildren in the kingdom. They're not outsiders, you know, begging at the gates, but that the Gentiles have been adopted into the family of God. And it's almost like he just wants the, the Gentiles to see this and go, you know what? I think this is about me too. And I, I think maybe I'm included in these things. And, and we'll get to a spot today where uh, Paul's going to stop and pause for a minute and call all of us just to think about um, whether we actually are in Christ. Because the question isn't, are you Jewish by birth or are you Gentile by birth? Really, the, the foundational question in the book of Ephesians are, is this, are you in Christ? And the first chapter, I think it's over a dozen times, the Apostle Paul uses that phrase to describe Christians. You're in Christ. You're in Him. You're in Him. You're in Christ. And then in chapter 2, uh, the first 10 verses, the Apostle Paul lays out beautifully for all of us what that means individually, that we have been saved by grace through faith, and that God has prepared these good works for us now. And then the second part of chapter 2 is this beautiful explanation of how Jesus went to the cross not only to die for my sins and to reconcile my relationship to God, but he went to the cross to die for our sins and to reconcile our relationship to God and with one another. But if I'm in Christ, I'm connected to you in a way that can't be undone. And then we looked at chapter 4 about, Paul talks about now that that's true, we can begin to talk about this beautiful unity we have together as a church. One faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and in all and through all. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at how Jesus has set up the church and he's given gifts to the church, but it doesn't come by way of like furniture and carpet. He's not talking about, you know, chairs and all these courts. He's like, hey, here's the gift to the church. It's people. That Jesus has actually given people to the church to be a gift to each other. 
Leadership is given to equip the saints to do ministry, and those saints, as they do ministry, are going to bless one another. And so the real gift of the church is actually looking at me right now. It's you. And so now what's going to happen is out of that passage in the first part of Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul is going to kind of shift gears and stop for a minute and talk about transformation. And I loved Ken was praying about this this transformation that we need. And it's going to be described this way as kind of a putting off of something and then the putting on of something. This kind of metaphor of like a wardrobe of taking off something to put on something that's better. We're going to start in uh, verse 17. Paul says this, he says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I want to stop there and just walk through some things that we're seeing here. If you read through the book of Ephesians, just start to end in one sitting, you're going to notice this theme of walking coming up. Paul talks a lot about our walk, and it's really meant to be an illustration of how we live our lives. So he's not literally talking about the way you walk he's not asking you to keep track of your steps and you should walk a certain way and carry yourself a certain way physically it's used to describe the way we live our lives going all the way back to Ephesians chapter 2 he describes how we used to walk in verses 1 in the first part of 2 he says and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in whence you once walked So my trespasses and sins weren't just things that happened to me. It's actually something I used to walk in. It was part of my life, my daily activity. Verse 10, he says this, For we now in Christ are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now that we're in Christ, God is going in front of us, preparing good works in advance, that now in Christ, you and I would walk in them. We would walk in these good works. Chapter 4 begins this way, and verse 1 says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And we, we talked a couple weeks ago about how this calling from Christ to each of us is this invitation into salvation, into the forgiveness of sins, into a reconciled relationship with God and with others. And with that calling comes a call to ministry. You have been called to ministry. You're not sitting out here week after week hoping that the call will show up. It's not like God called you into salvation and now you've got to work really hard and if you really impress God, you'll you'll become a starter. You'll make the A team and then he'll put you in the game. Your invitation to ministry is part of your invitation into salvation. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul says, we need to walk in a a manner worthy of this calling. 
In chapter 5, he mentions this walk three times. He says in verse 2, walk in love. What does that look like? He tells us, as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. How do I walk in love? I look at how Christ walked, how he lived. And I'm being called to walk that way. Chapter 5, verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness. It's describing your former life. But now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And then a few verses later in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So there's this calling coming to us from God to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, no longer walk in sin and trespass, but now to walk how? To walk in good works, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to walk in love, to walk in the light, and to walk into wisdom. And so here we are in Ephesians 4 and Paul says this, he says, I'm urging you to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now that word Gentile in the New Testament is used both literally and symbolically. So literally, um, there is a difference between being a Jewish person versus a Gentile person. It's simply just as referring to your ethnicity and your nationality. So if you're born an Israelite, a Hebrew, you were a Jew by birth, and all those who were not are born Gentiles. And it's used very symbolically in relationship to the gospel to describe this. The Jews are the people who know God and walk with God, and the Gentiles are not. The people who do not know God and do not walk with God. And so something powerful happens. Ephesians 2 talks about how the Jewish man and the Gentile man have now become one in Christ. And it's almost like the marriage symbolism that out of the two men, God has made one and reconciled them together. And so literally, this is a letter to Gentiles, but symbolically, the idea is he's referring to who they were before Christ. He's saying, no longer walk as you used to. You can't, you can't just quit being a Gentile, right, ethnically, but spiritually speaking, he's saying, hey, that's no longer your identity. You are no longer one of those who does not know who God is, who's on the outside looking in. You've been invited in. And this relationship you've been invited into, it's not a probationary relationship where God's just waiting for you to mess up and then you're out. It's not a trial basis. You've been adopted and you're not a stepchild. You're not a Gentile on the outside. You've been adopted into God's family. You're a co-heir with Christ. This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then he's going to spend a few verses reminding us and describing to us what it looks like to walk as a Gentile. And so the first phrase he lays out here is this, that they were darkened in their understanding. And then he's going to explain what that kind of means. But to start with, we're going to see this contrast between dark and light. We read in Ephesians 5, no longer walk as darkness, now walk as light. And so he describes the Gentiles this way, that they walked in a sense of darkness. They were darkened in their understanding. And one of the things that they were darkened in their understanding had to do with who God was. They were alienated alienated from the life of God. 
We hear alienated, and we may think like um, an illegal alien or a, somebody who's a foreigner, but this word also, and probably better translates, a stranger, somebody who's not known. So it's not just that somebody from a distant country who's not a citizen, it's actually somebody who's a stranger who doesn't know God. So the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, and they're strangers to God. They don't know who he is. They're alienated from the life of God. And then he goes on to say this, and they have this hardness of heart. It's this Greek word, porosis, and it means to cover something with a callus. It's that process of becoming calloused. So if you go outside and you work with your hands, do some flower bed work, some gardening, mow the grass, you work with tools, you're going to notice, if you haven't been doing that, that you're going to get blisters. Then blisters are going to pop, and then eventually that skin is going to become a callus, and the next time it won't hurt as bad. And then the next time it won't hurt as bad. And if you keep doing it, it's the way God has created your body to work. It's really cool. Eventually, you know, the hammer or the shovel is going to go in your hand. It's just going to fit. Why? Because you've got the, the calluses there to protect you from, from being injured by that tool. But he's not talking about your hands here. He's saying that same thing can happen to what? Your heart. That over time, your heart can become callous. The very next phrase, it says this, they have become calloused. This is a different Greek word. Apologio, it means to lose all feeling. So when you first become callous on your hands, right, the next time it, it'll still hurt, but it doesn't hurt as bad. But eventually, if you keep going, you'll lose that sensitivity to feel that pain. And so the same thing can happen to our hearts, that our hearts can become so calloused that we will lose all feeling and we will cease, this is the literal definition of this word, cease to feel pain or grief. It's talking about your heart. That you could become so calloused that you could no longer feel painful things. You can no longer feel grief. The King James Version translates it this way, being past feeling. To become so callous that you've now passed the place of being able to feel. The NIV says it this way, having lost all sensitivity. Now that can happen to us. That we could begin to lose sensitivity. That our heart could begin to become so callous. That can happen with guilt and shame. To be guilty of something. To sin and trespass against God so many times that you no longer feel the conviction of it. You're like, well, I guess God doesn't care anymore. He's not, he, he, he realized he's not going to fix this in me, so now I just don't feel the conviction. That's not what's happening. Your heart has become callous. And it's not just the, the guilt and shame mechanism. It's all of it. If you lose feeling in your heart, you lose all your feeling. That's what the word's telling us here. To have lost all feeling. To where I can't even feel grief anymore. Just think about that for a minute. 
It's pretty scary, isn't it? Yet, I notice a pattern among Christians, even faithful church-attending Christians. See it sometimes at like funerals and memorial services. Often when I'm doing the service and I'm planning a few days ahead with the family and we're talking about grief and there seems to be this like sense of, well, if I'm a Christian, I shouldn't feel that, that grief, that sadness. I'm, I should be wrong. Like I feel wrong feeling this way. I should be excited about where they are and feel guilty for feeling grief. And yet that's not what the word says. The New Testament calls Christians to grieve, to do it different than the Gentiles do, to grieve with hope. But we still grieve. Like, think about that for a minute. Your heart can become callous to begin to lose sensitivity to things. I just want to lay this out there for you. If there's any family members in the room, my wife, friends, I used to say this about my funeral. Maybe you've said this. I don't want anybody crying at my funeral. I want everybody to be excited, to be celebrating, and then we get to the, why would you want that? Because we know where we're going to be, right? No more suffering with Jesus. Hallelujah, all exciting, yet funerals aren't for the deceased. You're not nudging them into heaven by showing up at a funeral and getting excited. They're either there or not. The funeral and the memorial service is really for us. Can I just tell you my mind has shifted on what I want for my funeral, so take note. This is what I want. I want to be so known and so cared for by the people who know me, my family and my close friends, when you show up at my service, I want you to cry your guts out for a good 20 minutes because I want to have meant that much to you. I want to live my life in such a way that I meant that much to you and you're supposed to grieve when you lose something that means something to you. And then for the next hour, tell jokes, tell stories, have a ball. But like, right, I don't want you to feel like I'm asking you to be callous to what you're feeling. And here what Paul is saying is that, listen, you're now in Christ. No longer walk as you used to, darkened in your understanding, callous, right, to what's going on in your heart to where you can no longer feel conviction or guilt or shame or grief or sadness or pain. God put that in you for a reason. I was paying attention to that song we just sang, and I love that line. It's so accurate, but I want to add one to it. It's like, we're not formed by our feelings. That's absolutely true. We're not. We're informed by them. We're informed by what our heart says. When our heart is moved to grieve, it informs you. You lost something that matters. Pay attention to that, right? If your heart begins to like ooze out this sense of loneliness, pay attention to that, please, because God said it's not good for you to be alone. Don't become callous to that. Pay attention to it. Let it inform you. And then it is the gospel that transforms you. But do you see the problem? They become so callous that they were desensitized even to the gospel. 
And then he says this, they have given themselves up to sensuality. That word sensuality, um, the best translation I could kind of give to you is to let, is to run riot, morally speaking. So think about what a riot is. That's when lost all control. No more boundaries, no more rules. That's, that's how this Greek word is rendered into English, to morally your life runs riot. Wow. And so what he says is, that didn't just happen to you. You gave yourself over to that. That's the wording here. Like, they have given themselves up. They've handed themselves over. Another translation would be, they abandoned themselves to moral riot. I've never been in a riot. I've seen them on TV, and they scare me to death. It doesn't matter how big or strong or fast or smart I am as an individual because once the riot starts, I got no control. God forbid I have a family member with me. And now this is being described when we walk as the Gentiles do and our hearts become callous, our lives will run riot, morally speaking. That should scare us just as much as if we were in a physical riot. And so then I have to ask the question, what does it look like to give myself up to that, to hand myself over to that? In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks quite a bit about this. I'm just going to read one verse, but he describes this, this callousness that, that can come over your heart and this being given over to sensuality and moral riot. And he says this in verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So two things happen. They cease to honor God, and they cease to do what? Give thanks to Him. What happens? But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. That's how it happens. When I cease to honor God and I cease to be grateful for what God has done in my life, my heart begins to grow dim. Darkness begins to set in. Callous begins to set in and I begin to give myself over morally. That should scare us to death. Paul's saying to Christians is, hey, don't live that way. Don't walk like the Gentiles do. And now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to lay out this overview of this transformation that's happened where he's going to talk about putting off the old and putting on the new. But before he does that, he takes a brief pause to make sure that you and I stop to ask the question, am I actually a Christian? Am I in Christ? Look at what he says. We'll read verse 20 and 21. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. 
So there's this pause here before he moves on to make sure that we don't just read right past that and assume, I'm in Christ, this is about me. He says, no, 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 let's stop for a minute. Are you actually in Christ? Have you heard the gospel? Have you responded to the gospel in faith? And have you been taught the truth of the gospel? In chapter 1, verses like 11 and 12, he says how this works. He says, you hear the gospel, and then you believe the gospel, and then God seals you with the Holy Spirit. So have you stopped for a second? Have you heard the gospel? Have you believed the gospel with the kind of belief that invokes action and trust? Not talking about superstitious belief where I like cross my fingers and go, Jesus, 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 seven times and I get what I want. We're talking about this faith that invokes a walk of trust. And then Ephesians 2.8 says, you've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the work of God so that nobody may boast. And here in Ephesians 4, you just pause for a minute. Hey, Let's pause. I'm assuming that you've heard that gospel and that you've been taught that gospel. If you haven't, what I'm about to say doesn't apply. So now, moving forward, here's what he says. We'll pick this back up in verse 22 for those who are in Christ. Two, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness and so he begins to describe then this transformative work that happens please understand He's not now talking about everything that should have already happened before you became a Christian. He's now speaking to those who are Christians, who are in Christ. So if you're sitting here today and you're wondering, why do I still battle with the flesh? Why do I still struggle with sin? Why are there still things that I, I do that I wish I didn't and things that I really want to do for God that I just haven't quite done yet? He's describing the process that transforms you in that struggle. It involves putting off something and putting on something. And so now what we're going to do is, this is really going to be part one of this putting off and putting on transformative process. Then we're going to come back next week, and after these verses where we've read today, Paul's going to get real practical, and Ken's, one of our elders, is going to come back and preach part two. Just these practical daily examples of what it means to put off and to put on. But what he's talking about here is the idea that I'm to put off my old self and to put on this new self that is created in what? The likeness of who? Of God. In true holiness and righteousness. This is a description of Genesis chapter 1. Think about that. What God created as good in Genesis 1 and 2. 
at the pinnacle of creation. His last piece of creative work is human beings. And he says what? These are going to be different because why? They are going to be created in our likeness, in our image. Male and female human beings are going to be image bearers. I'm going to give them faculties, mental capacities, emotional expressions that you can't find anywhere else in creation. I think it was the first line of that new song. If all creation somehow automatically became articulate with a thousand tongues and one voice, creation would magnify Christ. But creation can't do that. You and I can't. And so what he says is this putting off, put on, putting on transformative process is essentially restoring me to Eden. It's a look back to what was lost at the fall. It's a look forward to what gets restored at the end. That you and I, through Christ, would be restored back to what Adam and Eve were created to be. It was broken, fractured, lost, but not permanently lost. And so this putting off and putting on is about this transformative process in your life, in your heart, restoring you back to Eden. I'm going to stop for a minute and think for a second about what he's saying here. One of the mistakes that we make in this putting off concept is that we misinterpret it as simply just put it behind and pretend like it didn't happen. The former life before Christ, I'll just shut the door on that. It's shoved away in a closet. No need to revisit that. That's what he means to put off. We're going to see today, clearly that's not what he means. Matter of fact, if you do that, you're going to create more callous. Because there's real stuff in that closet that Jesus has died to save you from. And there's real stuff in that closet that Jesus has died to heal you from. So to put off, I've got to be willing to stop and take inventory. Like I've got to stop and give my suffering a name. I can't just say, well, you know, it was hard growing up, but it was hard for everybody. Shut the door, move on. No, I'm going to give my suffering a name. Yeah, I mean, I sin, you sin, we all sin, so therefore, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not confession of sin. That's shutting the door and stuffing in a closet. And hoping nobody finds out. And guess what it leads to? A callous heart. For my Savior to be real, my sin has to be real. To experience the real healing of Christ, that He died to give to you my pain and my suffering has to be real. You see how this callous heart prevents you from experiencing all that Christ has for you? So to put off, I've got to be willing to stop and give names to these things. I want to think about this because he's going to transition from here and say this that you were taught to also put on your new self and baptism is a beautiful 
um, symbolism and illustration of this putting off and putting on. Like the way we baptize here, we've got a, um, a baptistry, it's up here in the stage, it's got a set of stairs, and if you've seen it, the person comes down in the water with whoever's baptizing them, and once they're in the water, at least in my mind, it looks a lot like John the Baptist baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. Like they're both standing there waist deep. John baptizes Jesus and brings him back up out of the water. And that symbolism is so profound. It mar- it's, it's a beautiful kind of picture, a living picture of the, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a beautiful proclamation that whoever's being baptized is saying, hey, I'm in with him. My life is hidden in Christ and I've been raised to walk a new life. But in the first century church, they actually added a piece to this to symbolize this putting off and, and putting on. And they would actually, before a person was baptized, the practice was um, the, the baptistry actually had two sets of stairs. Like if you look at pictures like the old synagogues, the baptism was outside and two sets of stairs. And so you would go in one side, but before you went in, you'd strip down and take off all your old garments, which is why the practice didn't last very long. That's why we don't do that here. And you would go down into the water with no garments on, be baptized. But then when you came up out the other side, they would have a brand new set of clothes for you. Here, put these on. Clothes without stain or blemish that aren't worn. Why? Because it's symbolizing now your righteousness in Christ. This, you're putting on the righteousness of Christ. You're taking off the darkness of, of the Gentile clothing and you're putting on Christ in his likeness in true holiness and righteousness. And in a way, the baptism itself is symbolizing the reverse of what happened at the fall where Adam and Eve took off righteousness and put on dirty garments, symbolizing this relationship with God has now been fractured. Their image-bearing purpose among creation has now been distorted and their relationship with one another has now been broken. And so baptism is the symbolism of the undoing of the fall, that that's being undone in us. And that's this putting off and putting on symbolism. He says, hey, if you're in Christ, no longer walk in darkness like the Gentiles. You're a child of the light. Now walk in the light. Verse 25 gives us some practical understanding of what it, how we put off and put on. And I'm going to read 25, and this is where we'll stop in Ephesians 4. He says, therefore, having put away, hear that similar language? Put off the old self. Now he's telling us something practically we can put away, which is what? Put away falsehood, but we're not just putting it away, we're going to put something on. Let each one of you put this on, speak the truth with his neighbor. It's interesting there. I was expecting to say speak the truth with God, but I think that's implied, but I also need to be willing to speak the truth with my neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. We talked about this in length last week. I'm a member of this church, but it has nothing to do with this building. My membership isn't to this building or this floor or this stage. It's to you. I'm a member of you, and you're a member of me. We're members of the church. And so to put off, I've got to put off falsehood I gotta quit lying, hiding my story, and now do what? Speak the truth. 
First John uh, chapter 1, this will be our last passage for the morning, talks about this in, I think, a helpful way. So John is one of the disciples, and he was referred to as the one in whom Jesus loved. We know that he had a super close relationship with Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, John is talking about a similar thing. And I want you to listen for the connections to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4. He says this, this is the message we have heard. That connection? Paul's like, hey, as long as you heard the gospel message, this is true. John's saying, hey, here's the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Do you remember that? Where Paul's like, hey, walk is, no longer walk as darkness, walk as what? Children of the light. John's saying, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we claim to have a reconciled relationship with God, while we walk in darkness, as the Gentiles do, we lie and do not practice what? The truth. So going back to Ephesians 4. No longer lie to each other. No longer walk in deceit and falsehood. Instead, what? Walk in the light. Tell the truth to one another. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We callous our own heart. We give ourselves over to sensuality. We give ourselves back over to darkness and deceit. Verse nine, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. Paul's saying, put off this old self. This old self has become callous. It's running morally riot. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God himself in true what? Holiness and righteousness. John's telling us how that happens. If we'll confess, you know what that word means? It means to agree with. When you confess to God, you're not giving him any new information. You're just agreeing with him. Like think about the conversation between God and Adam in the garden where God's asking him questions. Adam, where are you? God wasn't trying to find Adam. He was helping Adam find himself. It's like when you're, toddler goes and plays hide and go seek and you can see their feet sticking out and they're all giggling (laughs) where are you you know where they are God knew where where Adam was he knew where Eve was he was inviting him to do what to step back out into the light to confess to agree with what God already knew if we confess if we agree with God He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. One more thing I want to point out here and I think it matters. Part of the unique quality of being an image bearer is that when you give something a name, it's powerful. 
If you go back to the garden, God brings all of creation in front of Adam, and the, the word tells us, God's word says, whatever name Adam gave it, that's what it was. The galaxies did not name themselves. Adam got to do that, or his descendants. The, the, the cocker spaniel didn't get to name itself. Image bearers did. You with me? Like, it's a really powerful thing when you give something a name. You give your children names. Then your children will give your parents names. And those things matter, don't they? Like, if you're a grandparent here and your little two-year-old grandchild wants to call you Grampy, guess what your name's going to be? It's Grampy. Because when image bearers name something, it matters. Now take that same concept and apply it to all the stuff that you've stuffed in your closet. This invitation to confession is to give your sin and your suffering a name. That's, that's where the real Jesus is going to meet the real you and forgive the real sin and heal the real brokenness. The Gentiles walk in darkness, pretend like everything's okay. Guess what happens to their hearts? Become callous. So thankful that the gospel is more powerful than the calluses on my heart. That it can penetrate. Go through. Break in. And and cause this dead, darkened, callous heart to come alive. to put off and to put on just think of it this way if you struggle with confession that concept's new to you here's, here's how I think of it just tell the truth on yourself you're good at telling the truth on everybody else siblings are fantastic at this and then, you, then you're good at it in your workplace in your neighborhood it shows up in gossip you're good at looking at somebody else's life and telling the truth where we struggle is look in the mirror and tell the truth that's a phrase that I use, like, hey, man, can I, Nick, can I tell the truth on myself? Where's Nick at? I don't even know if he's in this. He may be somewhere else getting ready for something else. But, like, hey, can I just tell the truth? And if I can at least muster up the courage to make that statement, guess what happens? It just opens this flow of, let me just tell the truth, man. Let me just tell you what's going on in my heart. This is what telling the truth looks like. I just, I'll still one of Nick's examples in marriage. If I show up with you, at community group, and you go, hey, man, how are you doing? I say, man, I'm doing okay. You're like, ah, I can read through that. How are you really doing? I'm like, well, this is kind of a frustrating afternoon. Me and Hallie, we just had a little tension, but everything's okay now. Is that telling the truth? No, it's not. Telling the truth would be, actually, right now, I'm really hurting, and you know, my wife's hurting. Uh, we, got, we got an argument, and like I yelled. And I, in the moment, I meant to yell, and I wanted my words to, like, get her attention and maybe even try to control her in some way. And I'm just feeling a lot of grief and, like, conviction over that, some guilt. I'm really sad that I hurt my wife. You hear how honest that is? I'm giving it a name. I'm telling you what I did. And guess what happens? If you'll confess your sins, God is faithful and just. But if you hide your sins, 
you're essentially calling him a liar. So, putting on, taking off, we're going to come back next week and it's going to get even more practical. But it begins with this willingness to tell the truth. To refuse to walk in darkness, to refuse to walk in deceit, to refuse to walk in hiding and say, now I'm going to walk as a child of light. Here I am. I want to end with some questions for you to think about. And these questions really were designed to give you some space to take inventory on your own heart, the condition of your own heart. Paul is writing this letter to Christians. So just because you say, I'm a Christian, does not mean you can check out right now. So here's just some ways for you to think about what's going on in your own heart. So the core of who I am is not this shell of a body, but it's what's going on in my heart. It's going on in my mind. So if the core of the old self is a calloused heart, would you just ask yourself this question, how is my heart doing right now? Like what's coming up in my heart like right now? For most of that, us, that's really hard, isn't it? You gotta stop and think. A helpful way to do this is just run through the major plot lines of your life. Marriage. What's going on in your heart right now towards marriage? You may be really thankful and have like just a lot of gratitude for what's going on in your marriage. Give it a name. Or there may be some hurt going on there. You need to give that a name. Think about the plot line of like parenting, your relationship with your kids. What's going on in your heart when you really take some inventory on the major plot lines of your life? What's going on at work? If you let yourself stop to really think about work, what comes up in your heart? Is there fear? Is there some struggle there at work going on? See, if I walk as the Gentiles do, I'm going to stuff all that stuff back down, put it back in the closet, and guess what happens to my heart? It's calloused. Second question is this, as it relates to suffering. You think about your past and what what has happened to you, what you've been through. Ask yourself this question. Is there suffering in your past that has caused calluses on your heart because you haven't named that suffering to God and others? It's way back there in the closet and you just really don't want to even face it again. Is there any suffering in your life, in your past, pain that you've gone through, grief that you've gone through that you haven't named before God and others? Is there any sin in your life that's causing calluses on your heart because you have yet to give it a name before God and others? How long has it been? How long has it been since you've stopped and given a name to your sin and suffering? How long has it been since you've been just like gut level honest with God and gut level honest with a brother or sister in Christ? It may have been this morning, it may have been yesterday. For some of us, it may have been 10 years ago. This last question I'm going to ask. 
really it's, it's the same, kind of that same train of thought. How long has it been since you stopped to take inventory? And just give your sin, again, a name. This is what happened. You are an image bearer and you live in a fallen world. You have both sinned and you've both been sinned against. Jesus desires to save you from your sin and forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And he desires to heal you of all brokenness. For your savior to be real, your sin and suffering must be real. I'm gonna take some time to pray over us and um, just knowing that this morning can kind of land heavy. Um, ask our prayer partners to be available if you'd like somebody to pray over you, pray about something going on, something that may have come up. This may have stirred up some stuff in you that you really want to talk with somebody about in length, and so I want to encourage you to, to reach out to our um, elders and pastors. We'll be available to you. Like We ask our elders to wear lanyards so you can find us out in the commons area in case you don't know who we are. Um, come find us. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you stopped and went, wait, I don't know that I've really like thought about the gospel and like trusting in Jesus and like what does that really mean? Would you, would you come talk to us? It would be a blessing to us to have that conversation with you. If you're here today and you're like, you know what, I need to take some inventory. I've never done that. I became a Christian. I hit the ground running. I shut the door on my past and I've never stopped to think about how Jesus has like set me free from that stuff. I'm gonna encourage you, grab a pastor or elder. Let us talk to you about redemption groups. That was a, one of our video announcements. Let us talk to you about counseling ministry. Let us talk to you about community groups. Let us encourage you and help you find a place to be known in this church. Give you some space to tell the truth about what's been going on so that you can find the healing that you need. So I'm gonna pray for us, invite our worship team to come back out and lead us in a time of singing. However you need to respond, I'm gonna encourage you to do that. Father, thank you for this word from Ephesians 4. Um, God, it does land on us heavy. It's not just a, um, a description of who we used to be, but for many of us, most of us, all of us, it describes this ongoing struggle. Father, for those of us who are in Christ, it's so tempting to just shut the door on the pain and the sorrow and the grief and the conviction and the shame and the guilt and just go hide behind the trees like Adam did but this morning we hear your voice through your word inviting us out of hiding and it's not the voice of an angry God it's the voice of a loving father you see our brokenness. You see the fallen world. And so when we bring that to you, we're just agreeing with you. We're confessing that to you. And God, in a similar way, you've called that, us to own that with one another. To walk in the light as you are in the light. Father, this morning as we get ready to respond, I pray your spirit would move and stir in our hearts. I pray that Jesus would be exalted in the song that we sing and Father, you would be glorified in our midst. We pray all this in your name. Amen.